Good morning. morning. Our brother Doug Clayton is still out. Uh, Muscle spasms and I think uh, muscle pulls, so please keep him in your prayers as he heals. Uh, He's got a lot going on right now and a lot of stresses and uh, he really doesn't need this. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. 1 John 3, verse 9. Pastor continues the study of revival in the adult Bible class. Uh, It's a good conversation for anyone who wants to attend, and we encourage that. Uh, It's very stimulating, very, very stimulating. Today is our communion service. After morning worship, we will take a 10-minute break and regather when you hear the music. No dinner tonight, no, no choir, no evening service. Men's Bible study is Tuesday, 10 a.m. at McLeod's home. Uh, see George if, you, if you're planning on attending, you can make arrangements. Uh, don't forget our prayer meeting on Wednesday nights, 7 o'clock. We had a good meeting last Wednesday, and we encourage you to come out and... Uh, Strengthen numbers, brothers and sisters. Strengthen numbers when we pray. We're trying to make a church directory. Uh, I don't know if if, uh, you folks have seen these. It's a little phone directory, family, uh, so we can contact you uh, on events and things like that. Uh, See George if you you have yours filled out, or you can put it in in the... the box for uh, our tithes and offerings. Crisis Pregnancy Center, or Pregnancy Resource Center, I should say, an annual banquet is this Tuesday, May 9th, at Hunters Creek Community Church. Doors open, silent auction at 5 p.m., and dinner at 6 p.m. You must have a ticket to attend. See Sheila for tickets, which are free, a basket for the silent auction is in the foyer. If you want to contribute to that, we encourage you to. Uh, today is the last day for the donations. Family game night, scheduled on Friday, May 12th at 6.30 p.m. Here at the church, bring snack foods and pop. And I guarantee you, it'll be a fun time. But just keep your eyes on Laura. So... <laughs> I don't trust her in the games. Next Sunday is Mother's Day, no evening service. Uh, Did I forget any uh, announcements, or does anybody have anything additional to add? Okay. Uh, Scripture for meditation is from Romans 6, 5 through 23, and that would be 1754 in your pew Bibles.
Would you stand with us as we begin with opening prayer? Dan, would you lead us in prayer, please? Please remain standing for our first song. Two hundred sixty two in the brown, please. Oh, 
please be seated. A hymn from the congregation today. Lydia, I'm going to take you today, honey. Go ahead. Be Thou My Vision. Yeah, that's in there. I think that's 389 in the brown. Let me check. 387, 389. 382. I was in the ballpark. 382. Why have you chosen that this morning, honey? Scripture reading for this morning comes from 1 John 3, verses 4 through 10. That'll be page 1901 in your Pew Bible. Would you please stand as uh, we do the Scripture reading? <coughs> Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, Sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. 
No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does not what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning, because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. May the Lord add his blessing to this holy and inspired reading. Please remain standing for our next song. 441 in the brown.
Please be seated. At this time, we have a music special.
Thank you, girls. Our text today is 1 John 3. Last Lord's Day, we studied the seeing that sanctifies the truth that we're to fix our eyes on Christ and stay focused. Peter sank in the waters of Galilee when he began to look at the turmoil around him instead of staying fixed on Jesus, the one who had bid him come out of the boat and join him on the water. In similar fashion, John tells us to keep our eyes on Christ in this sense, that seeing is a means of learning. He even tells us that one day when Christ comes, we shall see him as he is. And that being the case, we ourselves will be like him that is completely holy, completely sanctified. May I say that sanctification comes no other way. Even the Holy Spirit, who is the agent of sanctification, teaches us of Christ and reveals him to us because knowing Christ for who and what he is is the pathway to holiness. As the Spirit conforms us to the image of Jesus that we see. But if you don't study Christ, you have no time You have no true model after which to pattern your life. Men fail us, that's for sure. Bible teachers are fallible. Pastors are sinners. Only Christ displays God as he truly is. And that is why we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. So my question, are you growing or have you been stagnated in your growth? Well, today's text brings before us one of the most difficult teachings of John's epistle. His charge that for the Christian community there is to be no sin allowed here. What does he mean by that? Let's pray. Thank you, dear Christ, for the truth of your word and thank you for the epistles of John, this one whom you uh, listed as the beloved disciple is the last of all of the disciples as we're reading of him. This time in history, all of the other disciples, I should say all of the other apostles were dead and gone. Even John was imprisoned on the island of Patmos from where he wrote this wonderful letter. And he is reminding us of things that Jesus taught. And he's reminding us of things that are essential for our own holiness of life. And I pray that you will help us. Help us to get on his wavelength to see what he is saying to us. That we might profit from these words this morning. Bless those that couldn't be with us. They want to be with us, but they're sick, they're estranged, they're away. We pray that you will protect them and bring them back safe. Bless us in this hour and in the hour to come, in Christ's name. Amen. 
We're looking at the subject. No sin allowed here. Seems a strange thing, doesn't it? What is the nature of sin? If you look at your bulletin outline there. Last week we studied verse 3, which says, Everyone which has this hope in him, that is, the hope of seeing Christ as he is and being like Christ, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now, purity in this context is the opposite of sin. Verse 5 says of Jesus, In him is no sin. So this is our goal as disciples of Jesus. We're not sinless now, but that is our prospect. That's our destiny. Not only because God has willed it so, but because we wish it so from some understanding of the nature of sin. Okay, what is the nature of sin? John says, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, here's your definition. In fact, sin is lawlessness. John is not specifically referencing the laws of the land, but indirectly they are involved as well because the Bible commands us Everyone must submit to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Romans 13, the first two, chapter, uh, first two verses. We read that, and this is sometimes a very hard pill to swallow for believers, because as we look at history, and even in our own day, there have been and there are some pretty wicked people in authority. The press brings to mind people like Stalin and Mussolini and Hitler. And in Paul's day, he wrote Romans when Emperor Nero was on the throne and began a terrible persecution and slaughter of Christians in the aftermath. In more recent history, we have had the Castro brothers of Cuba. We have Kim Jong-un, North Korea, who is threatening to put all of us in the United States into ashes. We have Chavez of Venezuela. His people are revolting against him, but... He's cracking down with an iron hand. We have Ahmadinejad, the dictator of Iran. Seems to be no end of evil authorities that are operative in our world. The mitigating factor in Paul's charge to submit to human authority is that such submission is not absolute. That is, if the governing authority asks us or even commands us to say or do anything which violates the law of God, there is room, there is even obligation for civil disobedience. As when the apostles were commanded by the Jewish council not to preach the gospel of Christ anymore, or you're going to suffer consequences. Well, what did they say? They answered, we must obey God rather than men. Let me put it in the vernacular. 
We have to obey God rather than you guys. You can command us all you want, but we're telling you right now, we're not listening to you. Well, when they paid the price, the price of being flogged for their response, chapter 5 of Acts, verse 40. But they went out of the meeting rejoicing, even with their backs bleeding. And the Bible says, this is so wonderful, Acts 5, verse 42. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Wow. The authorities tried to beat them into submission. But they never stopped teaching. Now it wasn't sin for the apostles to oppose the edict of the Sanhedrin on this occasion because what the council was commanding of them was a violation of the law of God. Jesus had commanded them, let me read it to you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and into the other ends of the earth. Acts 1 verse 8. And so to do otherwise would have been a breach of the command of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this then is what John means when he says in verse 4 of our text, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. He's talking specifically about the law of God, which supersedes the law of men. The best of human laws take their position from the law of God. Did you know that? That a lot of our Civilian laws are based upon the word of God. They simply echo his justice and his morality. But at times, at times, tyrants come into power and they enact laws which are cruel and vindictive and oppressive and a violation of everything sacred and pure and right. And these we cannot obey in good conscience for reasons we're going to examine shortly. For now, all I want you to see is that sin is lawlessness. Sin has to do with breaking the law of God. God says to us, you shall not do such and such. But we go ahead and do it anyway. Or the law says to us, do such and such, and we refuse to do it. This is the Bible's definition of sin. And with such a wide-sweeping and all-embracive definition, it follows, as Paul has written, that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3, verse 23. We fall short of living in such a way as to fail to bring glory to God by our behavior. None of us are exempt from this indictment by God. Paul writes, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who does good, not even one. I look at those two texts, that's Romans 3.10 and verse 12. There's no wiggle room there. You see any wiggle room there? I don't see it. 
There is no one righteous, not one. No one who does good, not even one. Now there are certainly more stipulations on morality and ethics than the Ten Commandments. But if we just started there with the Ten, we would all find it impossible, I think, to make it through the list unscathed. If honesty is a part of our heart, you would have to confess that you have been guilty of many violations of the Ten, and most likely all of them, and for some of them, guilty all the time for repeated violations. So God would be perfectly just to lock you and me in the confines of hell and throw away the keys. Perfectly just to do that. But something has happened. Point two of our outline. The payment for sin and its accomplishments. Look at verse 5. But you know that he, that he is Jesus, you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins and in him is no sin. Now the Bible uses a number of terms to describe the work of Christ at Calvary. It talks about forgiveness. It talks about atonement. It talks about a ransom being paid. It talks about being justified before God. John could have used any of these terms, but he chose to say that Jesus appeared, that is in his incarnation, in his flesh, to take away our sins. The Greek word here is the word iro, and it means to carry off and away what has been picked up. Let me say it again. To carry off and to carry away what's been picked up. That is to relocate something to another place. Thus Jesus is said to have carried away our sins. He has disposed of them so that they no longer infect us and influence us as before. The Bible uses some picturesque descriptions to teach what God did for us when Jesus was nailed to the cross in our place. Let me read some. Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins under foot and hurl all of our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Boy, I'll tell you, that's a picturesque description. Trampling our sins underfoot and hurling our iniquities into the depths of the sea. I did some, some that's Micah 7, 18, by the way. I did some research on that because I wanted to know how deep is the sea. The deepest part of our oceans seven miles deep in the Marianas Trench. There the water pressure is 16,000 pounds per square inch. No human organism could survive that. Seven times what's a mile over 5,000? That's 35,000 feet 
below the surface of the water. That's pretty picturesque. God takes our sins and throws them in a trench. Now, not literally, understand, but it's, it's, these are picturesque words to give us an idea of what is being said. Or again, God says through his prophet, You have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your offenses. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Amen. Isaiah 43, verse 24 and 25. Now you think about God knows everything, right? We use the word omniscient. Omni meaning all, and science meaning knowledge. Knowledge of all, that's our God. He's not ignorant of anything. So what is it, what could possibly be Isaiah's point? What is he saying? You have blotted out our transgressions, and you remember our sins no more. What he is saying is, God chooses to forget. Think about it. He chooses to forget. The sins are scrubbed away with the blood of the sinless Son of God. Again, the psalmist tells us, The Lord is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed, and he remembers we're dust. <laughs> Psalm 103, verse 8 and following. As far as the east is from the west. So, think about this. He's hurled our sins into the depths of the sea. He's blotted out our transgression. He chooses to forget them. He's removed our transgressions to the polar extremes. And now John says that Christ has taken away our sins. Literally, the Greek says the sins of us he's taken away. That's very personal, isn't it? The sins of us. Also very selective. Sins of believers. Not the sins of all the doubters and the scoffers that are in the world, but the sins of believers. Now Jesus can do this and did do this because in him there is no sin. Not even a conscious thought of sin. So as the sinless one, he acts like the escape goat of the Old Testament, of whom we read this. When the most holy place, the tent of meeting, and the altar, he, the high priest, shall bring forward a live goat. Live goat. 
He's to lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins. Put them on the goat's head. And then he shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed to the task. And the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place. And the man shall release it in the desert. Leviticus 16, verse 20 through 22. It's called the scapegoat. The baptizer said of Jesus, Look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John 1, verse 29. So back to our text, John is saying that Christ has made the payment for sin. And then, secondly, he has dispensed the sin. He's taken it away. He's also destroyed the devil's work. Look at verse 8. He who does, not, does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Okay, what's the devil's work? The devil has been sinning from the beginning, John says. So sin is the devil's work. Temptation to sin, minimizing sin, whitewashing sin, deceiving with sin. In particular, Jesus said of the devil, he was a murderer from the beginning. John 8, verse 44. How so? Well, he murdered the human race when he convinced Adam and Eve to rebel against God and reap the promised penalty of God for eating and digesting the forbidden fruit. When you eat of it, you will surely die, said God. John, Genesis 2, verse 17 but the devil came along and he said, Oh, you will not surely die, liar, liar, liar. Paul says that he was deceived and became a sinner. 1 Timothy 2.14 Moses writes, She also gave some of the fruit to her husband who was with her and he ate. Genesis 3 verse 6 And so he became a sinner too. Thus Paul says in Romans 5 and verse 12, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. Adam and Eve were not sinners originally. They were sinless. And as such, death had no claim on them. Then Satan came along and he lied through his teeth concerning the command of God. And the Bible says, they exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Uh-oh. Actually, the text literally says they changed the truth of God into the lie. And worshipped and served created things, Satan being one of them, rather than the Creator who is forever to be praised. Amen. So death came upon our first parents and us as their offspring because 
of a lie. Do you know you can kill somebody with a lie? You can. You can kill somebody with a lie. You can convince them to take a course of action which will be detrimental to their well-being and end in death. The devil, the deceiver, with a carefully placed believable, believable lie slew Adam and Eve and all of humanity by causing them to sin. And with sin comes its wages, which is death. He is a murderer. Jesus said he was a murderer from the beginning. And in Jesus' word, there is no truth in him. So how does he murder? He murders with lies and deception. Lies and deception. I want you to think about that the next time sin looks pretty attractive to you. There's poison in the apple. So John tells us that Jesus came to destroy the devil's work. Verse 8. This complements what John said in verse 6. He appeared so that he might take away our sins. If sinning is the devil's work and Jesus destroys his work, if sinning brings death but Jesus takes away our sin, then sin is no longer, no longer has a necessary, that's my word now, no longer has a necessary hold on us. Our sins have been atoned for, indeed taken away, as noted in all of those Old Testament texts I read. Our enemy <clears throat> has been defeated. writer of the Hebrews puts it this way. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held slavery by their fear of death. Hebrews 2, verse 14 and 15. You know what makes death fearful? It's sin. That's why people are afraid to die. Because they know that when they die, afterwards comes the judgment. Paul writes, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Colossians 2, 13 and following. Saying, Paul is saying, Christ dealt with sin. He dealt with sin. How did he do that? He dealt with the devil. Now, if we are forgiven our sins, the devil has nothing with which to accuse us anymore. 
If death and hell are satisfied with Jesus' punishment for our sin, the devil cannot hold us captive by the fear of death. We are truly free, free in Christ. Okay, but then thirdly, we're also freed from the power of sin. In other words, no habitual sin. The two most important verses in our text are verse 6 and verse 9. Verse 6 says, No one who lives in him, referring to Jesus, no one who lives in, let me say it that way, no one who lives in Jesus keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. And then verse 9 says, No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. Now granted, at first glance, it appears that John is saying that Christian people do not sin. In fact, some of the holiness movement teach this very thing. They teach that it is impossible to become, rather, that it is possible to become so holy in living in this life that one can become sinlessly perfect. I, I think about that, I think, how wonderful that, that would be. Wow. But if such were the case, then heaven would be found here on earth. And that will never happen in a world whose God is the devil. You say, well, well, how do you know that John is not saying this? I mean, after all, it sounds like he's saying this because he says, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. Brethren, let me just suggest to you that one always has to remember context when arriving at an interpretation of the Bible passage. Not only the immediate context, but the broader context. Now we know that John cannot be saying that believers can arrive at sinless perfection in this life because in this same book, written by the same author, He says in chapter 1, verse 8, If we claim, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Or verse 10 of chapter 1, If we claim we have not sinned, we make him, God, out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. So here John argues against any notion that believers can reach a state in which they do not ever sin. Okay, what then is John saying in our text? In the news, an MIT female student fashioned what she called an art project on her sweatshirt, which consisted of some twisted wire, 
a six volt battery, some Play-Doh glued to a circuit board, and then she walked into an airport security area. This is MIT, Massachusetts <laughs> Institute of Technology. She was summarily and promptly arrested by the security officers as well she should have been. Whether it was a prank or just a naive college student uh, was yet to be determined, but she was arrested anyway. Why? Because, as the news commentators argued, what that kind of thing isn't done at airports. That was the news headline. That kind of thing isn't done at airports. And for obvious reasons. Now, a literalist reading the newspaper article might argue, oh, wait a minute. Obviously, that kind of thing is done at airports because that student just did it. But you see, that's to miss the import of the outrage. The statement, that kind of thing isn't done at airports, is the equivalent of saying, that kind of thing is not to be done <laughs> at airports. It's inappropriate. It'll bring dire repercussions if you try something like that. Now this is precisely how John's phrase no one who is born of God will continue to sin. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. He is saying there's no room for sin in the Christian life. The Christian sin is a fact, but it's not the way it's to be. It is not the norm for the people born of God. Sin is not allowed here. It's off limits. You don't sin as a believer. You don't make sin the habit of your life. And if you do, you have neither seen God or known Him. Verse 6. So this brings a consciousness with regard to sin that's very sober. Any idea that a believer has to sin because he or she is a sinner by birth is here negated. How so? Because Christ has taken away our sins. He has destroyed the deceptive lying influence and solicitation to sin from the devil. What once had sway in our life no longer holds the predominant position. We're new creatures in Christ with a new nature of God. Oh, and one thing more, verse 9. God's seed remains remains in us. The word seed is sperma here in the Greek, sperm, which refers to the life principle based uh, that's passed from parent to child, which determines God's character and conduct being in us. You'll remember in John 8 that the Jewish leaders were trying to kill Jesus while claiming to be the seed of Abraham. And Jesus rightly objected to their claim because Abraham was a man who loved God and would never have tried to kill God's son. And so Jesus concluded that there, these would-be assassins were the seed of a different father. 
their father the devil, the murderer from the beginning. John is saying then in our text that we believers are the seed of God. God has implanted his character, his nature in us, and that enables us to be freed from the habit of sin. You and I do not have to sin anymore. Now the world can do nothing but sin because they have no disposition or empowerment from God to live for him. But that's not true with us. Believers can choose not to sin. But beyond that, second, we are freed from the power of sin in that we now have the capability to do what's right. Verse 7, dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous. Just as he is righteous. So this is the other, uh, the other side of the same coin. Not only do we not have to sin anymore because we are freed from the power of sin, but we can do what is right in the eyes of God. I'm sure as parents, one of the things you are trying to teach your children is to do the right thing. Do the right thing in whatever circumstance they happen to find themselves. You want them to do that which is right. When tempted to lie, you want them to tell the truth, which is the right thing. When tempted to steal, you want them to keep their hands off other people's belongings, which is the right thing. When tempted to be disobedient to your directives and to dishonor your authority, you're teaching them not to dishonor you through rebellion. You want them to obey you and honor your wishes. This is what we want. This is our goal. And we have an ulterior motive. We do not want our children to come under the judgment of God for sin. But this being said, what we want and what we desire is constantly frustrated in the behavior of our children. Why? Because if they are not born of God, the only nature they possess is our old sinful nature, and there's no empowerment in that nature to do anything but sin. Wow. Now we wish we could transfer our godly nature through the genes to them, but alas, only God can birth a child bearing his holy nature. But once a person is born of God, then he or she is enabled for the first time in their life to behave in a God-honoring and righteous way. This is the foundation of Paul's argument in Romans 6. He says, In the same way, count yourself, or reckon yourself, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness, for sin shall not be your master. Romans 16, verse 11 and following. 
So what is he doing? Paul is building a case for right conduct based upon the completed work of Jesus Christ. Christ defeated sin and death and the devil and hell so you could be free to live a righteous life that brings glory to God. Romans 6, verse 16 and following, give the underlying principles. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey. Whether you're slaves to sin that leads to death or to obedience which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. Something has to change. You can't change it, but Christ changes it. And when it's changed, you now have capacities and abilities that you never had before. So, brethren, this is John's point in our text. You can do what's right. You don't have to sin. We could say it this way. You have a choice. Unbelievers do not have this option. They can only sin because they have not been born of God's seed. Their father is the devil, though they do not recognize his deceptive hold over them. You, however, know what is right. You can do what is right. All it takes on your part is some pre-thought and predetermination not to permit the devil's lies to sway you in the wrong direction. So, John concludes by saying there are two kinds of people in the world. Two kinds. Number one, there's the children of God, and number two, there's the children of the devil, verse 10. And then he makes this statement. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Here it is. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God. This is because, as we have noted, only God's people can do what is right. Only God's people can do what is pleasing to God. I could say it this way. Only God's people know what's right from wrong. Only God's people have the will to do what is right, even if it means going against the stem of popular opinion. Now, there's no braggadocia here on God's people. We know these things and can do these things because God has done a work in our heart by his grace. <laughs> He's made us like Christ. Otherwise, we'd still be in the mire, in the quicksand, drowning. This is the moral quagmire our country finds itself in. God has said in Isaiah 5, verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good, good evil. Who put darkness for light, light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet, sweet for bitter. Isn't that our society? 
God's people choose the right and the good thing to do. Oh, and one last thing. Look at verse 6, the latter part. Nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Lest we think that being a child of God only involves right choices, John reminds us that the children of God know how to love one another. They do. Whereas the children of the devil know only how to hate one another. We look at our society and what rules? Anger and hate rules. That's what rules in our society. So much jealousy and pride and infighting and one-upmanship and on and on it goes. So whose child are you this morning? Who is, who's your father? You cannot be a child of God if you keep making sin the practice of your life just as it has always been in your life. No change means no rebirth of God. You cannot be a child of God while you live in a willful, disobedient way to what you know to be right. Maybe you're so messed up you cannot even discern what is right anymore. Well, if that's you, you're still bound to your sin, and Jesus is the only person that can set you free. So I charge you to come to him today. Come now and break the hold the devil has on you. He has a hold on you through lies and deception and manipulation. And if you keep sinning, the devil is your father, and he'll lead you ever so gently by the hand into hell with him. Which Jesus taught was prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, verse 41. That's how we got hell. That's where it came from. In the plan of God, God's already determined, I'm going to deal with this devil. Sooner or later. And I got this place that I have prepared for him and for his angels and for his followers and anyone else of that stripe. So my question is, why would anyone want to go there? But alas, many choose to do so because evil is more attractive to them than righteousness. But there's coming a day, brethren, when God is going to rule the earth in righteousness. The heavens and the earth are going to declare his glory and his righteousness. So just to capitulate here a bit with regard to John, John is not saying is he, that we never ever sin, but he's saying that it's, it's not the rule of our life. And he's saying that for the first time in our life, because of God's grace, we don't have to sin. We can choose to do something different. We can choose to obey Christ. We can choose to live in a righteous state. We can choose to love the law of God where before we hated it. We can choose to promote the law of God where before we broke the law of God. And God has done that all for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. The devil has been defeated and sin has been taken away. We're just waiting for the mopping up procedures to occur. And they're coming. 
Our Father, thank you for your word and for the sufficiency of Christ. We live in a sinful world, and it's everywhere around us. And, of course, the um, charge to us is that we don't have to be contaminated by it. We can choo choose to live on a higher plane, a holy plane, with the Lord Jesus Christ as the head of us, as he is head of the church. I pray that you will bless these truths to our heart. Help us because um, the devil is a powerful enemy. He doesn't give up easily. He wants us to be continued to be submissive to him. He likes it when we sin because it says to the rest of the world, see, I even have control over these people that call themselves disciples of Christ. And if he can besmirch our testimony and our lives, he will do that. But thanks be to God, he's given us the victory in Christ Jesus. We haven't always acknowledged that. We haven't always acknowledged that there has been a transition that has taken place and it's from death to life and the sin is taken away and it has been dealt with by Christ and the devil has been dealt with by Christ. Wages of sin is death, but our Savior arose from the dead, conquering death and Satan and all of his lies. Help us to get on that mindset so that we might live righteous lives and rejoice in those things. For the glory of Christ, we pray these things. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the hymnal. Four hundred thirty-eight. Great hymn. Prayer, but it's been accomplished. Cleanse me, O Lord, and know my heart today. Try me, O Savior, and know my thoughts, I pray. See if there be some wicked way in me and cleanse me from every sin set me free let's stand together as we sing 438 in the brown hymn Oh.
singing that or praying that kind of prayer that we're going to get a no answer. We're not going to get a no answer. If you come to Christ and desiring for him to change you and make him like unto, you, unto him and to forgive your sins, he will do it. He has promised to do it. He's delighted to have his people come forward. All right, we're going to take a 10-minute break and regather when you hear the music, and we will have our communion service for the day. And I remind you, there's no evening service and there's no choir today. So we're dismissed. Mm -hmm. 